1: As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back
2: home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. FX Supply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today.
3: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. With LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2.
2: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is
4: Will the Thrill. Greetings and
2: salutations. And our storyteller today is TJ2 the deuce
0: howdy <laughs> uh,
2: so we we made it you guys it is
0: 2021 it
2: is 2021 welcome to the very first episode of the draft
0: yeah hopefully everybody got to listen to the uh the draft um i'll be honest with you we had actually recorded that quite a while back it was like um,
2: september or something right and like, i think
0: it was like early september will and i were both drinking pretty heavily in that one i didn't remember anybody i picked hardly
4: yeah i was i was as shocked as anyone to hear the results of that draft
0: yes i was and i participated in it which is (laughs) quite a a thing
2: oh uh but
0: but for those who who listen to it um basically what we're doing for a while is heavy hitters big name people with and we're going to cover them with multiple part episodes so to have some fun with it ld devised a draft where we we, you know we had draft picks and we we took artists who were going to cover this year but she threw in the caveat at the very end you we have the ability to make one change now my picks were Tom Petty Elvis Presley Tammy Wynette and Rick James Uh, but now but now keep in mind the date that I gave you September early September is when we actually recorded that Unfortunately, in October, we lost a fairly significant contributor to the world of music, and somebody whose music I grew up listening to. So I am exercising my right to uh, bring in one different artist and to make a change as we start the year with our our heavy hitters series.
2: Okay. Fair. that's that's totally fine. Well, let's let's talk about who you're dropping and who you're picking up.
0: Okay, this this is this pains me to no end because uh, I'm going to have to I, I, I've. <laughs> I was so looking forward to all four of the episodes or, or series, all four of the artists, but I got to hang on to Tom. Uh, that's my dude. Uh, just, just, I've, I've been wearing out the, the Wildflowers and all the rest box set since I got it uh, a couple of weeks ago.
2: Oh, you did get Ta- it. Awesome.
0: T- Tammy Wynette's backstory and life and so many of the things away from music are are so compelling and fascinating. And Musically finished off her career doing – a techno song with a band called the KLF. One of the weirder things I've ever listened to in my life. I got to hang on to that one. And then just the mystique and the crazy nature of Rick James. I'm interested in diving into. So I'm unfortunately going to have to part ways with, with the King. We're going to come back. We're going to do a series on Elvis at some point. Obviously we have to, Um, He's the King of rock and roll. That's a guy whose music LD and I grew up listening to. So that's, that's um, definitely somebody we're going to come back to, but so unfortunately I'm going to purge Mr. Presley and he may not actually even be dead. So, so it's possible he's not even eligible for the podcast. That's
1: true. (laughs) That's
2: true. He was an extra in home alone. So, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, yep. So, uh, but because of uh, a significant passing that happened uh, about a month after we recorded the the draft which was you know just dropped for you to listen to a couple of days ago um i am exercising my right to to make one change up okay so that's where we're going to start uh, the new year
2: all right well uh here's to 2021 being way better than 2020 uh everybody proceed with caution touch nothing let's just make it through this year if it doesn't notice us it can't hurt us right
4: <laughs> site is based on movement
2: the year's site is based on movement like 2020 was a t-rex just trying to eat us
4: it's like that scene in Jurassic Park yeah with the water like <laughs> the end of 2019 I think it was like a
0: it was like a, a I don't know like a, a trailer full of like monkey poop on fire going down a hill or something,
4: crashing into an orphanage. Yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: cra- crashing into an orphanage.
2: <laughs> I mean, I've never seen so many. We were watching, um,
0: killing, killing uh, three, um, baby seals along the way, and, and two nuns, two nuns, some, some baby seals,
4: <laughs> and damaging the ozone layer at the same time. Yes, <laughs> all at the same perfect, time.
2: Really angry. <laughs> How dare you! Yeah, it was, I, I've never seen so many end of year, like, you know, the, the countdowns for like, we were watching, we were bouncing between like CNN, NBC, like, and at midnight, everybody was like, oh my God, we made it. It wasn't like happy new year. I was like, oh, thank God that's done. I've never seen that so many times. Just happy to be out of a year.
4: We yes. made sure
2: it scratching up. The only reason why I stayed awake was to make sure it happened.
4: Oh, yeah. I wanted to see it go out the door. I needed,
2: we, we actually opened up the door, and at midnight, I walked out on our balcony and yelled, Jay. <laughs> so hopefully it, it'll get better. So who is this magnificent preacher that we are covering today?
0: Well, we are going to be diving into a, uh, a series on the uh, very great and sadly late Eddie Van Halen
4: awesome who we did not make him out of 2020
0: no no he didn't and will Will, and i I think are both pretty pretty big fans i okay. would say absolutely ld i think wh- where it comes to van halen you're more in the oh i like them category than than die hard
2: yeah, let me just put it this way i would rather die hard
0: that, devotee or whatever
2: i would rather live in a world where i get to listen to van halen than where they never existed sure so, i mean uh, I will always dance to You Really Got Me Now, Jump, Panama. Like, I love those songs. I don't know if they hold a sentimental place in my
4: heart or, or hit me in the feels. The, the thing is, if you are a Gen Xer and you played any guitar at all, Eddie Van Halen is one of your top influences. Yeah. Th- that is not opinion. That is fact. That's <laughs> yeah. fact.
0: If if you if you ever picked up a guitar after about 1978, you pretty probably much. did it because because of Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, um, and
4: he's on the pedestal of greatest of all time as he deserves. You
0: you can certainly make an argument. He is the most one of the most influential musicians to ever live. Oh, I, I don't I don't think that's a reach or a stretch because not not only did he inspire so many people to go to, to to want to pick up a guitar, or maybe to scare them out of ever trying it. Because <laughs> you kind of had this idea. oh Well, crap! I could probably never do that. But also, the the number of copycat ripoffs that he that that he spawned.
4: Yeah, I mean, he was doing things no one else was doing. I'm sure you'll expound on this later, just how inventive and I mean, he was somewhere else, you know.
0: And 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 the more I've, I've studied about his life, which I mean, I, I, obviously, I knew a good bit about his life because I mean, I, I, again, as you'll see very shortly here, I I, I am a, a huge devoted fan. I love Van Halen. I have. Every Van Halen album, save the last two. One of them, I don't even want to talk about, but I guess we'll have to at some point.
4: <laughs> we'll, we'll get into uh, that.
0: <laughs> right. I, so obviously I knew a lot about him and I, I was familiar with all their music. But as you start to really look into his life, he has all the earmarks of being the mad genius, of being a savant or a prodigy. I, I mean, in almost every sense, the reclusive nature, the unbelievable burst of creativity and the inventiveness and and the, the dark side at times and everything He's just a fascinating character who, who made uh, to me some of the best rock and roll music that's that's ever been recorded so
4: I agree and, and I think you, when you're an artist you can succeed in two ways one is sort of the give us something we can identify with you know that we can relate to and the other is give us something that we don't even know exists and I think Eddie Van Halen felt the <coughs> latter category right And he was so
2: inventive and interesting. I will say that. Like, I don't know a heck of a lot about him. I do know that through another episode, we found out that he has three patents. Yep. I can't remember what, what, when, what.
0: And and if he had been familiar with the patent process, uh, process earlier in his life, he would have had several more.
2: Huh.
0: As you'll see, there are several things he sort of made up on the fly out of necessity huh. that are now industry standards that became a, a standard part of how guitars are, are even built.
4: Which which plays um, to not only his success, but if you think about it, the musical juggernaut that is the Van Halen unit. I mean, <laughs> it's it's just unbelievable. Like the mark that they left on music is incredible.
0: It is, is amazing. And when you think about the fact that, uh, again, we're going to discount those Last two albums, but <laughs> that their first ten studio albums all went multi-platinum. Mm-hmm. That there are now I think three diamond records in the Van Halen catalog, and there may actually be more than that, which we'll get into. There's some weird stuff that happened when they severed ties with a longtime record company. They they decided not to submit their albums for additional certifications and some weird stuff that went on like that. But but he just and the thing about Eddie. As you watched him play, it looks so effortless. Mm-hmm. He's up there smoking a cigarette. He's <laughs> great. Has that kind of silly little boyish grin on his face the whole time. Like he, like he could playing guitar to him was like you or I breathing.
4: Yeah, I, I remember that solo. And again, everyone knows the video "Hot for Teacher," where he's just walking and playing the guitar, doing things that no one else can do, like yeah. just taking a stroll. And,
0: and you'll you'll see as we get along here some of the all timers who. What, the first time they heard him were just floored and up and coming people who were like, Oh my
4: god, <laughs> yeah. what's this the, dude doing? The, the two pivotal front men who are known for being with Van Halen, we're not going to talk about the third, um, but their like, you know connection the there, there isn't quiet, and, and there's the musical talent that surrounded them. I mean, his brother Alex, you know, Mike Anthony, my god, it's just a again, juggernaut is the only word I can use,
0: yeah. So, I guess.
4: One? You'll find out. Okay.
2: Because so, all, all I know is Diamond, Dave, and Sammy. And that's all you need to know.
0: That's all you need to know. <laughs> you need to you need know nothing else.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I, I guess with all that LD, I suppose we will get started. Let's do this. Rock. All right. Now, just a little warning. This episode of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast is going to start in a way that no other has. We don't begin in the birthplace of a rock legend, nor are we starting at a hallmark moment of their career, flashing back, and then working our way forward. This episode begins in a pickup truck parked in the driveway of a home in the rural hamlet of Santuck, South Carolina. Two 16-year-old cousins get into that pickup truck, likely headed out for a day of merriment, misadventure, and some degree of no good. The driver reaches into his glove compartment and pulls out a newly purchased copy of the album Van Halen 1 and asks his cousin if he's ever heard it. He says he has not. So his cousin puts it on, and out of his likely factory installed door speakers, barely equipped to deliver the sounds that the album contains, came this. All right. <laughs> mm <laughs> I think it's very telling that all three of us were playing air guitar at various
4: points in my head. It's required.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just, it's an impulse. It's like a reflex. You can't stop it.
2: I don't even know if I'm doing this right.
0: <laughs> okay. So now the cousin was a fan of Jimi Hendrix, of Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin. So he was very acquainted with great guitar rock, but he'd still never heard anything like that searing 102 second long guitar solo. He sat there for a second, mouth agape, and finally spit out something along the lines of, oh my God, holy crap, what was that? How did he (laughs) do that? That kid had visions of fingers flying up and down the guitar at lightning speed, but with mechanical precision, each note complementing the one before it and setting up the one to come. It was a face-melting masterclass before anybody knew to use either term. Now, you're probably thinking that this reaction was not an uncommon one in the late 1970s. A lot of people here in Van Halen for the first time probably couldn't believe their ears. Except this wasn't the 1970s. Wasn't the 1980s either. It was in fact 1991. And the song the two had just heard was 13 years old at the time. Jeez. And
2: you'd never heard Van Halen through the 80s?
0: Well, Well, we'll get there in just one second. Those two kids had heard hard rock and speed metal that was inspired by Van Halen. They'd heard music recorded on more modern equipment with all manner of studio gimmickry, adding sheen and uh, polish and flourishes that some musicians actually can't even play. They'd heard the early heavy rock that inspired Van Halen. Still, this music, more than a decade old, sounded as fresh, as new, and as exciting as it had the day it was released. Those two kids, one named Kevin and the other being a fellow that listeners of this podcast are familiar with me (laughs) had in fact been floored and dazzled by a song Eddie Van Halen never intended to record he swore that the final product contained a mistake and that he just used it to warm up before playing so it was a yes so he in his mind this was just a throwaway but that throwaway tune and the rest of the Van Halen catalog to come changed the world of music, inspired a million air guitar shredders, Mm -hmm. and it stood the test of time. It sounded as good in 1991 as it did in 1978 because of the talent and power and unmatched virtuosity of the man who played it. And for those reasons, I'm willing to bet it would sound just as amazing to a pair of 16-year-old kids in a truck in West, where the hell ever, in Mm -hmm. 2021 as well. The first in our Heavy Hitter series is on The Very Great and Sadly Late Eddie Van Halen. Now, you say, had I not heard Van Halen before? As you know, LD, as you and I were being raised, we listened to what our mom wanted to listen to. We did not have musical choices so much, so we listened primarily to beach music, soul music, and oldies. That, that's that's primarily what the two of us heard until, gosh, what the mid nineteen eighties, probably.
2: I will say this. I will say this. I have a vivid memory of watching diamond dave and i don't know at this point he was solo already or what but i remember the video as a child of california girls (laughs) yep i remember that i remember being like eight and seeing that yeah
0: well and, and so the thing is is we would listen pretty much to what our mom listened to now when i would go to my dad's house on the weekends he listened to a little bit of Top 40, but he also listened to a lot of the soul music that, you know, mom listened to. And my stepmom listened to a little bit of country and a little bit of heavy metal, but not Van Halen. So mm. I'm sure that in passing, I'd heard Jump. I'm sure I'd heard Panama and Dance the Night Away and a few other, you know, bigger the, songs that were big hit singles. But as far as the deep catalog, I, I really hadn't. So my first real exposure to van halen came when i was about 13 years old 14 years old when OU, uh, OU 812 came out
4: that same yep Me so too.
0: i'd heard i, I heard oh 812 so finish what you started and feel so good and uh, you know songs like that and to in my mind that was van halen that's what van halen sounded like so you fast forward about two or three years from there I had never heard "Eruption." I had never heard Van Halen one. I'd probably heard "You Really Got you're their version of "You Really Got Me," right? right? This was the first time that I really so he, he and so he plays that song and I lose my mind. And then he played "Ice Cream Man," and then he played "I'm the <laughs> One," and then he played uh, just song after song after song. Uh, "Atomic Punk." We just sat there going, "How does he? How does he even make it? Make that noise? It's I mean, it's ridiculous."
2: For some reason, all I can see is like if you were a cartoon in that truck. Mm-hmm that like the heart bubbles would be like floating out of your head and the heart, like would be pounding out of your chest <laughs> and your eyes would be too hard. And the tongue is
4: hanging out. And
0: yeah.
2: They, uh, uh, uh. Like, yeah. Or
0: the, or, or, or the eyes bugged out like in freakish cartoon fashion. Right.
2: Yes. That's... How did you do that? <laughs> that's, so, that's what I imagine you as.
0: But that's, but that's that's kind of how I came to Van Halen. It's, it's very similar, you know, uh, unfortunately, my part of the um, Neil Peart uh, episode is lost to time and memory because of <laughs> a technical glitch. But the, you know, I the the first stuff I heard by Rush was off of Presto. Yeah, it wasn't something off an, an earlier album. It was from you know an album that came out in 1989. And then I went back and discovered the back catalog. Did that with a, with a lot of artists actually. So um, the first chapter of the Van Halen musical legacy actually begins in the Netherlands in 1920 with the birth of Jan van Halen. He seemed to be born with an affinity for music, and by the time he was 18, he was already viewed as a master on both the clarinet and the saxophone. Jan put that talent to work playing for jazz bands, swing bands, and for radio orchestras around Europe before World War II erupted.
2: You remember there was a time where you could probably play the clarinet and not get your butt kicked?
4: That yeah. Was <laughs> 20s to 40s, pretty much. Ridiculous bunch of
2: mocking for playing the flute and the clarinet.
4: Right.
0: Once World War II erupted, Jan actually enlisted in the Dutch Air Force in 1939, but would luckily not be flying into battle. Instead, his musical acumen landed him the job of playing marches for Dutch troops, and he would proudly play those marches for his music-loving sons a little bit later in life. That's
4: awesome.
0: In May of 1940... Germany invaded the Netherlands and conquered it in five days. Yeah. Now, I have read two versions of what unfolded next. One is that Dutch soldiers were given one of two options, those being immediate conscription into the German army or an immediate bullet to the head. So you're, you, you join us or we'll kill you. The other is that Jan was actually arrested and jailed for anti-German activities of some kind. Whichever way it played out, Jan was forced to entertain German troops and play Third Reich propaganda music, which disgusted him. However, that was at least preferable to being forced to fight on the front lines. After the war ended, Jan traveled to the Dutch colony of Indonesia for what he hoped would be a more lucrative musical career. During one performance, Jan met a young woman named Eugenia van Beers. The two, uh, two soon wed and headed back to the Netherlands aboard the famous repatriate ship Sibajack, and if I'm mispronouncing that, I, I apologize. They moved into a house on Michelangelo Street in Amsterdam. Huh. On May 8, 1953, Eugenia gave birth to their first child, a son named Alexander Arthur Van Halen. Alex. Yeah. A fellow you may be familiar with. Oh, yes. Less than two years later, son Edward Lodwick Van Halen followed. One thing I'm just going to say, that re- researching the early part of their life it, there's a there was a lot more heavy stuff and strife going on than i've actually realized in a 2019 interview with the wtf podcast <laughs> with mark moron moron moron
4: moron moron mark yeah. moron thank mark you Maran, mark Maran. as i
0: said before i as i've said before i've figured out a way to listen to the podcast that i'm on and that's about it <laughs> um <laughs> But David Lee Rolfe was was a guest on that podcast. And, of course, he would go on to multiple lead singing stints with Van Halen. But he said that early life for the Van Halen brothers was difficult. He said, quote, it was a big deal. Those homeboys grew up in ho- a horrifying racist environment to where they actually had to leave the country. Huh. He noted that the brothers in their native Amsterdam were referred to as, quote, half-breeds. Wow. Um, yeah, in a 2017 interview for the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, Eddie Van Halen said that his mother was treated as a second-class citizen in the Netherlands.
4: And I think that sprung out of the post-war sort of Dutch nationalism, because like you said, the Nazis came in and just smashed everything they had to the ground and took right. On. And then coming sure. out of that, there was this swell of national pride for, for the Dutch area, which had been just destroyed by the war. Right. I'm not justifying it, but I'm saying I, I think it's... Sure, uh,
0: sure, but that, that's definitely a thing that happened, in, in, yeah. and, in, and in more than one country.
4: Because their mother was Indonesian,
0: correct? Right, correct, she was Indonesian. But all of this is probably part of the reason that the two brothers, Alex and Eddie, would become so famously tight. Often they just had each other, and they always had to have each other's backs. Now, from an early age, both brothers, but Eddie in particular, would sit in rapt attention and watch Jan play music, including those Dutch marches. Sometimes when their mother was busy working a night shift, Eddie and Alex would tag along to their dad's public performances. Now, that sounds really cute and quaint, but the reason for that actually wasn't as innocent as it sounds like. Their mother hoped that the presence of those two little children might curtail their father's habit of enjoying many, many, many beverages after performances. And it didn't. Nope. In fact, it's cemented in the two brothers that music brought a sense of free-spiritedness and fun. When Alex was six and Eddie had just turned five, Eugenia enrolled her sons in piano lessons with a Russian concert pianist, one who would apparently pop your hands with a ruler when your fingers strayed to keys they shouldn't have been on, (laughs) from what I read. Wow. But she told them, quote, if you're going to follow in your dad's footsteps, it had better be respectable. In March of 1962, the family decided to immigrate to America. Letters from relatives in California had convinced Eugenia that America represented a fresh start and exciting possibilities. With only a piano and $50 to their name, the Van Halen family boarded an ocean liner for a nine-day trek to New York.
4: They took the piano with them? (laughs)
0: Yes, yes, they took their piano and their $50, and, that was, and, I think about, and the clothes on their back, and that was about it. The family was so poor, they couldn't actually afford tickets to board. They managed to sail because Jan played with the ship's band. Oh, wow. In what may have been the first public performance for the brothers, both Eddie and Alex sat in on piano during certain pieces the band would play during the trek. Eddie said that they learned then that the benefits of being able to play music were you know, were tremendous as the next night they dined at the captain's table.
4: And it's interesting that, uh, obviously both brothers are known for different instruments, but their roots were in piano and that does both. come out later in the music. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But both of them started being classic, uh, classically trained pianists, Yeah, which is not that, well, with Eddie, given what he would get into a little later, you would kind of maybe figure that, but not Alex. You not would, Alex, like, no. Right. But he, but he, both of them were apparently really, really good piano players. They arrived in New York, then they boarded a train for California and settled in Pasadena into a three-bedroom, single-bathroom apartment.
2: We know Pasadena. It's about 15, 15, 20 minutes from where we're sitting right now. Okay. It's funny enough, the, the, the overarching kind of demographic in Pasadena runs a little bit older here. But there is a fantastic dim sun restaurant there. (laughs) The downtown area is great. And that's where they hold the Rose Bowl every year. Well, the Rose Bowl is great every year. Sure. Um,
0: So now you might be thinking, okay, well, a three-bedroom, single-bath apartment, those sound like decent accommodations for a family of four. Until you realize that they shared that dwelling with two other families. What? Eddie told an audience at the National Museum of American History in 2015, quote, when we finally arrived, it was rough. We lived in one room, slept in one bed. My father had to walk three miles to go wash dishes at the Arcadia Methodist Hospital. He was a janitor at the Masonic Temple at Pacific Telephone. My mom was a maid. We used to go dumpster diving for scrap metal, then go to the scrapyard and sell the metal we found.
4: And they have a piano. Remember this. So half this, of that right. was taken up by a piano. They probably were right. sitting on the piano. All kidding aside, that's probably right. Yes. Yeah.
0: Of Alex, he said, quote, we were two outcasts that didn't speak the language and didn't know what was going on. So we became best friends and learned to stick together. Mm -hmm. Given that hard existence, Eddie said his father's idea (laughs) that America was a land of great opportunity seemed to him at the time like, quote, a crock of shit. Yeah,
4: well, I could see why.
0: Unfortunately, there would be more discrimination for the brothers to deal with. Eddie called his first day at school, quote, absolutely frightening. Quote, now you're in a whole other country where you can't speak the language and you know absolutely nothing about anything. I don't even know how to explain it, but I think it made us stronger because you had to be. Eddie said the school he attended at the time was still essentially segregated. It was not officially, but it was practically. And that because he couldn't speak the language, he was considered a, quote, minority student. And he said that white kids bullied him and that Black students, the few that there were, the school stuck up with uh, for him and were his friends.
4: How old is he at this point?
0: Oh, Eddie's uh, very young.
4: Okay.
0: Yeah, t- 10 I'm guessing.
4: Okay, around 10. Okay, I'm just thinking grade wise where that would put him.
0: Yeah. Eddie continued to take piano lessons, and though he never learned to read music, he would watch his teacher play Bach and Mozart and just mimic what he saw.
4: Huh. Isn't that incredible? He never learned to read music. That is... Never. Unbelievable. T-
0: till, the, for, for, till the day he died, he, he'd never learned to read music.
2: Okay, weird question. Could he write it? I don't think so. That's, that is crazy.
0: Now, all that was fine, wow. you know, that he would just watch the teacher play and he would mimic what he saw him do. Until his piano instructor was playing a new piece of music once and asked Eddie to turn the sheet music to the next page at the appropriate time. When he didn't know when to turn, the instructor said, what's the matter? You're supposed to turn the page. And Eddie had to confess that despite taking lessons from the man for five years, he had no clue how to read music.
4: Wow. <laughs> so he played everything um, by ear, basically.
0: Right. For, so, but I want you, this, this should give you an idea of how good a, a piano player Eddie was. From 1964 to 1967, he won first place in the annual piano competition held at Long Beach City College that would have nearly 5,000 entrants. What? Yeah. He won won first uh, like four years in a row. And and Alex was usually second, third, fourth out of about 5,000 kids that would enter this.
4: And that does explain why in Los Angeles particular, Eddie Van Halen is considered kind of a hometown hero.
0: Sure, definitely.
2: All right, so we do have to take a short break for our sponsors, and we will be right back. And we are back.
0: All right, so let's uh, dig back into the life and times of the great Eddie Van Halen. He said at one point that he actually played bass in a band with his father, with Alex on drums, despite having no clue how to play the instrument. (laughs) He said that they played, quote, umpah music and waltzes at bar mitzvahs and wedding receptions, quote, Al would yell at me which chords to play. He'd be like, one, four, five.
4: No, no, you f that one up." <laughs> yeah. oh, I would love to see that. That would have been so interesting.
0: Especially, especially, it sounds like it, to see you know, Eddie and Alex basically from from what he's describing playing like, like polka.
4: Yeah, <laughs> polka. At, at bar mitzvah. Yeah,
0: at a bar mitzvah with. With the, the the older brother on the drums screaming, "No, you effed up!" to the <laughs> to his little brother who doesn't who's playing a bass that he doesn't know how to play. Exactly.
1: Oh man. Um,
0: now Eddie's parents badly wanted him to pursue classical music, but of course that was not to be. He said his mother, while encouraging him, would also say things like, "quote you, You'll end up a nothing nut like your father." Ouch. Which obviously not uh, super encouraging, but
4: That's harsh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like many young people in the 1960s, the brothers heard and were moved by the British invasion. After hearing bands like the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five, Eddie and Alex started their first band. Are we ready for uh, crappy, yes. uh, crappy early band names? Here we go. Uh, Let's do it. The Broken Combs. Ooh, that's
4: pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: they would <laughs> a, a name that would later morph into the Trojan Rubber Company. The,
4: Wow.
0: Oh, what? Wow! Which one you're 15 probably seems like the coolest name ever. <laughs> you're going to name it after Rubbers.
4: Because <laughs> oh, it's oh, a step heep. up from the Broken Combs. From
0: the Broken Combs. No. Uh, in, the bro- in the Broken Combs, Eddie played piano and Alex played saxophone.
4: Again, still not their instruments. of. Uh, they're
0: still not to the instruments that we're used to. to we're, wow. we're getting pretty close at this point, though. <laughs> Alex eventually moved to the guitar. And okay. Eddie switched to the drums. Wow. Huh. Now, obviously, to fans of the band, that sounds completely backwards. Yes. But another instrument shift was coming. While Eddie was working his paper route, he said that Alex would play his drums and was quickly improving. Quote, he could play Wipeout, and I couldn't. I said, okay, well, F you. I'll play your guitar then, Eddie said. <laughs> nice. As for the piano, it would obviously remain in his repertoire, but he said he didn't want to sit down at that point. He wanted to, quote, stand up and be crazy. Eddie recalled that Alex would go out to, quote, party and get laid at about 7 p.m. on a given night and would leave Eddie sitting and playing guitar. When he would come home in the wee hours of the morning, having at this point, I I suppose, partied and gotten laid, (laughs) Eddie Eddie would still be sitting in the same spot playing guitar. Wow. So Alex would go out for, you know, a night on the town with his buddies or whatever, chasing girls. He would come home seven, eight, nine hours later and and Eddie would not have moved. Wow. Uh. He would be sitting in the exact same spot he was when he left, just sitting there playing the guitar. He did that for years and years, often locking himself in his room and spending days on end doing nothing but teaching himself to play guitar. He never had a lesson or an instruction of any kind, which is probably why his sound became so innovative and different. Because he figures that about 90% of what he does on the guitar would not only not have been taught in lessons, it might even be discouraged.
4: Yeah, that's Tom, a good point. Yeah. It brings up sort of, again, the, the invention is, what is it, the, the mother of necessity? Or right. Necessity is the mother of invention, as they say? Right. Their
0: childhood friend, Tom Broderick, remembered that Eddie was, quote, obsessed with his instrument. Quote, we never played football or rode bikes together. And to be honest, I rarely saw him in class at school. When I did, he was jamming at a party. Huh. Uh, now, Eddie couldn't afford much gear for the guitar at this point and actually didn't have enough paper route money saved up yet to buy himself an amp. So he would play his guitar pressed against a table to get a slight amplification of the sound. Yeah, uh, now, an electric guitar? I think so. Now, will of thrill has, has at least, to some degree, you, you you can play guitar or have in the past. Yes. Okay, so I'm about to delve into an area that I know very little about. I am a clod when it comes to music and instruments and stuff. So if I mispronounce something, please jump in. You please it. feel free. His first guitar was a Teisco, T-E-I-S-C-O, Teisco Del Rey WG41 that he bought from Sears. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> in 1971, the brothers decided to start a power trio. Eddie was a huge Cream fan and apparently learned to play every Eric Clapton solo note for note. Wow. He cites Eric Clapton, Cream-era Eric Clapton, as being his only influence.
4: Wow. Nod to Clapton there.
0: Right. He would be on guitar and sing. Alex would play drums. And Mark Stone would be the bassist.
2: TJ, didn't Mark just die this year as well, or well, last he year? Died
0: about a month, he died about a month before Eddie did. Yeah. yeah. He sure wow. did. Wow. But anyway, they thought of a super catchy name, too. Are Y'all ready for this one? Go. Yep. Genesis.
4: Wow! Really?
0: However, while digging through a record store bin, Eddie discovered that there was, in fact, already a band that had that name.
4: Yeah, there was. Yes. And their 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 guy sucks. Not this they That Peter Gabriel. Well, <clears throat> uh, that's fine.
0: So they they went with Mammoth instead. <laughs> Is um, that they so- also they they almost exclusively played cover songs, leaning heavily on the catalogs of hard rock icons like Led Zeppelin. Black Sabbath and Cream. I researched this thoroughly. To my knowledge, at no point did they cover any songs by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Oh, oh
4: that's hey, our that's... one. Our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Rivers. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank
0: you. Okay. Thank you. I, I, well, I didn't want to get the feds on your ass. So.
4: New Year, same obligation. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Um, they would play backyard parties and the like and usually rented a PA system <laughs> from a band called Red Ball Jet.
2: did they did they ever get anything from petula clark
0: not to my knowledge you
2: giggling hillbilly
0: (laughs) (laughs) um and they would have to rent their pa system from this band red ball jet for about 10 bucks a night
4: because when i think of a savory business deal i think of red ball jet red ball jet
0: that band featured a lead singer named David Lee Roth. Hey!
4: Hey,
2: I'm seeing things come together. Yeah.
0: This is what year? Do what?
4: Oh, you're about to say the year. I was asking what year.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say, this is backing up a little bit. In 1913, David Lee Roth's uh, Jewish grandparents immigrated to America, settling in Newcastle, Indiana. Roth was born in Bloomington to Air Force veteran and ophthalmologist father, Nathan Lee, and art teacher mother, Sybil. Roth's parents observed that their son was prone to daily bouts of hyperactivity they referred to as, quote, monkey time. That's very And they they actually had him see a psychiatrist for several years and attend a horse ranch for troubled teens.
2: Because I think if you're in trouble and you're a teenager, I always think
4: horses. Yes. I'm seeing a biopic of young David Lee Roth happening.
0: He was a different dude, to be sure. Noting when asked, for example, that his heroes weren't athletes or musicians, but instead were the likes of Genghis Khan and Richard and Maurice McDonald, originators of the McDonald's cheeseburger. (laughs) His family moved from Indiana to Massachusetts, and then they moved to the Pasadena area. Now, I'm sure as you approached this podcast today, you did so confident in the knowledge that we would be discussing federally mandated racial busing. Well, I'm sure you, that, that's, I'm sure that's what you, I mean, come for the racial busing, stay for the music. Right. Okay, in late 1969, a federal court ruled that the Pasadena City Board of Education was in violation of the 14th Amendment. Essentially, having, quote, neighborhood schools was seen as, in essence, a soft form of segregation, so the schools had to be rebalanced racially via busing. The Van Halen brothers did not have to switch schools. But Rolfe and other white students had to be bused to John Muir High School, which was predominantly uh, African-American and Hispanic. So at a time like that, people can either stay in their comfortable little cliques or they can embrace all the cultural differences around them. Rolfe, who always had an affinity for black culture and music did just that. High school friend, George Perez said, quote, at Muir, you had militant blacks who had Afros with Angela Davis posters in their lockers. Then you had long-haired white hippies and Mexicans as well. Roth got good at, quote, bridging the gaps, he said, and fitting in with everybody. So he fully embraced African-American and Hispanic music. He played soccer and did other things to fit in. His gift of gab, his charisma, and his ability to relate to a broad audience would prove very helpful in the very near future.
4: I was going to say, one thing I think we can all agree on is Dave's gravitas, as a uh, performer and, and, and,
0: and, and as, and just as a personality.
4: Exactly.
0: Yeah. I'll I'll just, as an aside in preparation for this, I've done a lot of things. I've read a lot. I've listened to the entire Van Halen catalog and I watched a lot of interviews. I watched uh, about three hours worth of interviews with Rolf one, about two hours long, one little over an hour. And I got almost nothing of value for this podcast from them. Now it's, it was slick it was entertaining it was funny but you never really get inside dave if that makes any sense
2: i, he, I don't know if i want to
0: I well he's I- got okay let me rephrase that inside <laughs> the, the, the who the real person is yeah, it's okay. it's it's all shtick. now it's it's entertaining as all get out but he said almost the same thing in the two hour two hour interview as he did in the one and a half hour interview he used lots of the same jokes lots of the same obscure quotes, but it's this this motor mouth boop, 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 boop delivery such that you don't really interview him. You cut his microphone on and tell him hello, and then I guess he decides when you're done. <laughs> it's kind of what it felt like.
4: Well, I guess someone like that would keep, you know, the personal cards very close to the vest, as they say, you know.
0: Sure, uh, sure, that, that's the vibe you get, is that you're not really getting a peek into the real Dave so much. It, it, it's a front. It's an entertaining front, very, but, but but it is a little bit of a front, it feels like.
2: I mean if you watch um, watched anything with Slash or with Gene Simmons you know it's it's kind of the same thing it seems like that pedigree that that kind of uh, personality you know that very extroverted on stage personality almost seems to kind of close off when it right. comes to their personal life. I don't know anything about Slash. <laughs> I know nothing. Right. I know that he's one, he's seriously in my top two guitarists of all time,
4: he's up there, right?
2: But I know nothing about his personal life, and I I, I find that really interesting.
0: Yeah, because he is um,
2: talent on stage, and I'm do the same way.
0: Right. So, and I I tell you all that to to point out that Red Ball Jet was uh, actually an R and B tinged group, and they attracted a very diverse crowd, including a a lot of girls. <laughs> Which, which is, which? The, the, basically the entire re- reason that I included th- that little bit of backstory is to tell you that he brought a diverse audience that included lots of girls. Because that is kind of... Ladies
4: love them some time a day. Yeah.
0: Right. That's kind of key to how he gets in the back. <laughs> um, now, Roth had seen Mammoth perform and he was instantly taken, particularly by the budding guitar genius at the forefront. He openly pitched himself as lead singer and frontman, but the Van Halen brothers were, to say the least, not terribly open to the idea. Quote, Ed and I could not stand that mother effer, Alex said. (laughs) And and the other thing is that, that at this point, Dave really couldn't sing. He was entertaining on stage. He attracted a lot of attention. He was compelling. Couldn't sing. He navigated songs. He was never let, really. A, yeah. let, let's
2: be honest. He couldn't sing at the end of the career.
0: <laughs> no, no, he, really, he that's never been his strong suit. No, there were a lot of things about Roth that the brothers couldn't relate to. Uh, <laughs> first of all, he would wear like platforms, suspenders and no shirt and other outlandish attire on stage. He liked R and B music and blues influenced rock, so stuff like Sly and the Family Stone and maybe the Rolling Stones. He also came from a wealthy family. Alex and Eddie, of course, were poor working-class kids. They wore boots and flannel on stage. Hello, in the early 1970s.
4: Hey, starting something.
0: (laughs) Sounds like. And they dug and played hard rock and heavy metal music, like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Roth was finally able to win them over on a couple of counts. You could say that it was initially almost a marriage of convenience. For one thing, it's no small thing that Roth had a PA system. If he was in the band, they wouldn't have to pay him to rent it. Also, Eddie didn't particularly like singing lead, which he was doing at the time. And Roth also, as I alluded to, brought in a very different audience, one that was more ethnically diverse, but also he had a very large local female following, which the brothers were not and opposed you can't help to but, having.
4: You, you can't help but think that David Lee Roth is the kind of guy who could sell the devil fire. I mean, let's Probably. be honest. Yeah. Sure.
0: Um, in 2012, Roth told the LA Times that he, he liked the, quote, immigrant energy of the Van Halen family, which, along with his hyperdrive to succeed, equated to "quote desperate people seeking desperate fortune with a smile." Huh. So Roth was in, and soon the name Mammoth was out. The new lead singer convinced the brothers that they should change the name to Van Halen, that was which he suggestion? thought possessed he thought possessed power and was instantly recognizable, sort of like Santana.
4: But that was Dave's suggestion.
0: It was actually Dave's suggestion, and they were initially resistant.
4: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Dave actually convinced them to change the name to Van Halen. He also sold the brothers on diversifying the playlist to include covers of people by the likes of David Bowie, Queen, James Brown, Bad Company, and others. So still a lot of hard rock, but also some stuff that people, mainly girls, (laughs) could dance to. The band spent about two years working on what can best be called the, quote, parents are out of town, let's party, bro, circuit. (laughs) So pulling together young fans from all the area high schools, Roth said the audience that the brothers had cultivated up to that time was, quote, 98% Jeff Spicoli. (laughs) The group played in dozens of big backyard parties. Flyers would be printed up and distributed at all three local high schools. It was not uncommon for hundreds of people to show up. Even if they didn't know where the concert was, they could often stop and ask at uh, local liquor stores, or they could just listen for the sound of Eddie's outlandishly loud guitar. Nice. He said that they actually had trouble getting club gigs because, frankly, he played so loudly. Huh. Huh. He, he joked that if Spinal Tap was going to 11, he was already at 15. It being the early 70s, drugs were plentiful, including pot, coke, and a wide array of psychedelics on top of beer and liquor. Police were often called to break up the gatherings. And on at least one occasion, they had to bring in helicopters to disperse a crowd of over a thousand people that had gathered in someone's backyard.
4: <laughs> to see Van Halen? Yes. That is Amazing.
0: Everyone in the crowd wasn't just a drunk high school kid or a stoner or people trolling for some booty. Eddie was quickly gaining a reputation as a guitarist. So lots of aspiring musicians would come to check him out. Quote, Eddie was pretty special. I'd look into the crowd and I could see the guitar player from every band I knew watching him. Eddie was the man, the king. It was unquestioned. Mark Kendall told loudersound.com for an article called Eddie Van Halen, the life and times of a guitar God. Kendall would go on to play guitar for the band. Great white. Mm. Quote, we were all jealous and we were all trying to play catch up. We thought, oh boy, this guy's going to change the world, said future docking guitarist, George Lynch. So what was Eddie doing that was so different from everybody else? Well, for one thing, he was using a technique called tapping. Now, I very rarely do rip and reads for this podcast. I, I try to put things in my own words, but I'm a colossal nimrod when it comes to music. So the, uh, this is the actual definition I think taken from Wikipedia is um, quote, a guitar playing technique where a string is fretted and set into vibration as part of a single motion of being tapped onto the fretboard with either hand, as opposed to the standard technique of fretting with one hand and picking with the other. Now, Will, would you like to decipher what I just read?
4: Yeah. I mean, and you've seen it in all of Eddie Van Halen's playing where he moves his fingers up the neck and you see his fingers moving. He's not using a pick. He's basically getting the sound by striking the string on the fretboard which allows him to in a song like eruption move through that fluid kind of you know that's tattic. with with a, with a speed you
0: almost can't get playing with a pick uh, c- correct cuz to pick that you, you almost to, you know, would not be able to move your wrist or hands fast enough to play as quick at with the speed that he does on a song like eruption
4: correct especially when you can work through all four fingers up and down and create sort of a fluid path along the string but yeah you're basically playing up on the fretboard not down on the strings
0: Eddie did not invent tapping, but he popularized it. He was the first person to make it a base part of his playing as as opposed to just like a little throw-in here and there. I'm pretty sure he was one of the first people to create whole pieces of music just using the technique. He was among the first to publicly play using a two-handed tapping technique, and he frankly just did it better than everybody else did, (laughs) even even once people started trying to, to copy him. He says that he actually got the idea to do it while he watched Jimmy Page play Heartbreaker at a Led Zeppelin concert in Los Angeles in 1971. Wow. Now, now, Page did not do two-handed tapping. He held one hand in the air and played with one hand up on the neck of the guitar. Yeah. So Eddie sort of got the idea that he could do that, but use a finger on his other hand as essentially a sixth finger on his left hand. Yeah. That's then he started using multiple fingers from his right hand, which explains why he was able to play with such ungodly speed that nobody else could attain at that point. He said that because of the way he played, a new means of writing music had to be conceived, since the standard notes and staffs could not accurately reflect what he was doing. So <gasps> something called tablature was born.
4: Yes, that's right. That essentially he was doing
0: things that you, but with, with standard notes and stats, you, you, you could not accurately reflect what he was playing.
4: Can I offer a definition of tablature? LD, just ask. Sure,
0: please do. Yes, please do. So,
4: so tablature is basically a way of identifying the position on the guitar fretboard to generate a note instead of, you know, the standard A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Mm-hmm. So by saying tablature, you're saying essentially this position on this fret, this number string. So if you're saying like the third fret string five, that generates a certain note. And to your point, Eddie didn't know how to read music. Mm-hmm. So charting what he did wasn't possible with regular. That's so amazing. Right. You know what's so funny yeah. is
2: that we have a podcast that is based in music, yeah. and you are the one with the most. I'm the closest thing you got, which is scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I sing, but I cannot. I cannot play a musical instrument. So all this is I mean. Uh, T, maybe you remember when I was in the high school band, I actually got kicked out of the high school band because I put my flute on the stand and would read babysitter club books during I do remember that.
0: Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I remember that.
2: And I remember the Uh, teacher got so mad that he threw the drumstick into the metal door and it broke the stick and dented the door. And then he got mad at me because the door was dented at that point. So, uh, yeah, no musical talent.
0: None, none whatsoever with me either. Now, but, but, but Will, you make a good point. Eddie can't read music or he couldn't read music. And he said that he couldn't read the tablature either. So he really had no idea if anything people had done to record his music is actually accurate or not.
4: Oh, that's amazing. That is incredible.
0: Um, it all makes sense though. If you think about it this way, he essentially turned the fretboard into a keyboard.
4: I've never thought of it like that, but it makes a ton of sense. Wow. Yeah.
0: He basically turned the fretboard into a keyboard, which, of course, he could play very well. He also, as the 70s wore on, found that most guitars were unable to capture the exact sound that he wanted. Again, I'm dummy McDumbass when it comes to music. So this is a distilled version of what Eddie said about building the famous Frankenstrat. Quote, what I really loved about a Fender guitar was the the vibrato bar, except they only came with single coil pickups, which at high volume, they squeal, and they're very thin sounding unless you use some type of distortion pedal, which I could not afford. Gibson made humbucking pickups, which canceled the hum and had a much fatter sound. So he found a company that made knockoff fender bodies and necks. He bought a junky second that had knots and stuff in it, $50 for the body, 75 for the neck. He then took a hammer and chisel and made a hole in the body big enough to put the Gibson pickup in. So he gutted his Gibson guitar for its pickup. Quote. Wow. I screwed the pickup straight into the wood. A Stratocaster actually has three pickups. So I routed out the body, crammed the humbucker pickup. It had three knobs and two pickups over here. I had one pickup that I wanted in there. And I went, how am I going to hook this back up? I had no clue. I wonder if it would work if I hooked the humbucking pickup straight up the one knob. And it worked. I made my own pick guard to cover the hole. It became the standard in the industry. The other thing I did was potting the pickup. If you get unwanted high squeal feedback I have no idea what prompted me to think this but I was thinking okay coil windings very thin copper wire around these plastic things with the magnet maybe it's the little things vibrating so he took one of his mom's coffee cans sat it on a hot plate and filled it with paraffin wax that he melted quote again I proceeded to ruin many pickups because I forgot that the pickup bobbins are plastic I didn't know what temperature to dip them at so I melted a lot of pickups Eventually, he figured it out. It worked, and that, too, has become a standard in the industry.
4: So he was playing a Fender slash Gibson guitar. (laughs) Right. That he Frankenstein together.
0: Right, that he he calls the Frankenstrap. The Frankenstrap, Um, yeah. Okay, so then there's another aspect, and this was way long and complicated, and I didn't totally understand it. I'm going to give you the absolute cliff, not even cliff notes, like the master plot version. Part of the, the, how he got he gets that fuzz that that slightly fuzz distorted tone. Now again, remember at this point he could not afford fancy pedals and stuff, so he had to, he tried to figure out how he could get these. So he bought uh, I think his first Marshall amp, but it it had come from England. There was a setting on the back of it that, of course, because they use a different amount of wattage for appliances and things than we do, and it was set on. the the British or English wattage. And he plugs it up and he he plugs his guitar into it and tries to play it and nothing comes out. He hears nothing. And he's like, what in the crap? This thing doesn't work. And it took it a little while to warm up. And when it did, he noticed that it was playing at a very low volume because it had about half the power going to it that it needed. So, but he said, he noticed that it had this, this slightly distorted tone that he would normally, because he, he didn't have a distortion pedal, he would have to play at an ungodly volume to get this kind of distortion. But he was getting this nice, clean, little distorted tone on his guitar coming through at a fairly low volume. So he, he figured out that, okay, I can control the volume of my guitar, but also the tone by how much voltage goes into it.
1: Oh, wow. So
0: he ends up having a, some friend who's an electrician, like rig this thing up to where he like, okay, well, if we're playing in a club, I only need about 87 watts. If we're playing outside at a big party, I need to be louder. I need 120 watts. Well, if we're in the studio recording, I can turn it down to like 50. And that's how he controlled the, not only the volume of his guitar, but also the slightly distorted, quote, brown sound that he was famous for. It's
2: kind of a fuzzy... Uh... But can't read music. But he couldn't read music. Couldn't
0: stop him. Oh, now, there's also the appearance of the guitar with the famous stripes which everybody has seen i'm sure he said he has no idea why he did it but he would take tape he'd cut it into thin strips with a razor blade and then put it in odd patterns on his guitar and spray paint the whole guitar he then removed the tape to reveal stripes quote it wasn't like i was saying i must make a work of art he said it was just like literally just a thing why don't i just do this let's see what happens There was one more significant change coming. By all accounts, Mark Stone, who, who, as LD mentioned, very sadly and almost unnoticed, passed away about a month before Eddie did in 2020, was a very good bass player. He said, though, quote, I was a straight-A student, and doing the band, I was split between these two things, and basically I couldn't keep up with them. Now, one story I read said that Eddie also wanted someone else to sing harmony and background vocals, and that Stone either didn't want to sing or he couldn't. Quote, we met one day and they actually asked me to leave. For a long time, it was really tough. It was really tough leaving that band because I knew they were destined for greatness. They say don't leave before the miracle happens. And I did. Wow. Now, Eddie was taking some classes at Pasadena City College at this point, And he had met a fellow student who happened to play bass. Originally from Chicago and originally a trumpet player and track athlete, That guy was a fellow named Michael Anthony Soboluski. Michael Anthony, yep. Who was playing with a cover band called Shake. He auditioned, the brothers offered him a job and he accepted immediately. That changed the band for the better in one very important way. Anthony is a he's a great bass player, obviously. But he was also he has a really good voice and he can hit high notes and that would become an absolute signature part of the Van Halen sound. The band eventually started to play club gigs and had begun working in their own material along with a wide array of covers. They were booked to play a club called Starwood along with George Lynch's then band, The Boys. And this is when the band finally got a break, or at least appeared to. The Boys were considered the hottest band in the area at the time, and in the crowd to see them that night were Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley.
2: Very cool. I have met both of them.
0: And I've seen photographic evidence of one. Now, they they were there to see this band called The Boys, and they liked The Boys. But Stanley said, quote, Van Halen were just a powerhouse. Eddie was something completely different, and Dave was on his way to becoming the ultimate frontman. Afterwards, Gene snuck up and offered to take them to the studio to do a demo. Very cool. So Gene Simmons actually signed the band to his Man of a Thousand Faces company, and he took them into the studio in Los Angeles, and then to Electric Ladyland Studios in New York. Hey! They recorded 24 demos, bootlegs of which you can find online, if, if you would like to. But they, uh, you often find them listed as the, quote, zero demos. Simmons loved what he heard, but he was astonished when Kiss's manager, Bill Ackoin decided to pass on the group. Paul Stanley later said, that that was much more about reigning in Simmons's ambition than not being impressed with Van Halen. The real break finally arrived on February 2nd, 1977. A former member of the pop group Harper's Bazaar was sitting in the audience at Starwood.
2: Okay. That's a good name. Harper's Bazaar. That's a good name.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, they actually had, uh, I think one or two top 40 hits uh, in the late sixties, early seventies. Now, so very few people, know his background as a musician, but most people are familiar with the producing acumen of a guy named Ted Templeman. He had already worked with Van Morrison, Little Feet, and Montrose. He was also an A&R executive at Warner Brothers Records. Quote, When Van Halen came on stage, it was like they were shot out of a cannon. They performed like they were playing an arena and not a small Hollywood club. He loved the whole band, but he was absolutely transfixed by Eddie Van Halen. Quote, it's weird to say this, but encountering him was almost like falling head over heels with a girl on a first date. I was so dazzled. I had never been as impressed with a musician as I was with him that night. This guy, when he played, looked completely natural and unaffected. He was so nonchalant in his greatness. Here he was playing the most incredible shit, acting as if it were no more challenging than snapping his fingers.
4: And, and which is amazing not to divert too much, but at this time, that band Montrose out of San Francisco had whom? We'll get there in just a second. <laughs> okay, all right.
0: <laughs> that, 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 this act, Montrose ends up playing a bigger role in things than people even realize. Oh,
4: I, they absolutely do, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to jump um, the gun, but... Uh,
0: no, oh no, no, you're fine. Well, uh, he supposedly wrote out a futures contract on a napkin and had the band sign it because he was petrified that somebody else would scoop in and get them. On a napkin? He brought a company chairman the next night and Van Halen officially signed with Warner Brothers. Now, and I will say this, Simmons, to his eternal credit, not only let the band walk from his deal with them, he never released those demos, which he was entitled to do. Now, like I said, you can find bootleg versions of them online. They're called um, uh, Zero Bootlegs or something like that, um, if you're interested in hearing them. In fact, though, he gave the original demos to the Van Halen family sometime before Eddie's death.
4: Wow. And he'll always be credited as the one who, quote, discovered Van Halen, I
0: guess. Yes, who discovered Van Halen. Um, The group went to Hollywood Sunset Studios in April of 1977. Down the street from my office. And and they knocked out 25 songs in two hours.
2: You can't even listen to that many songs in two hours. I, I
0: don't think I could. Um, Eddie said that the band listened to them in his van afterwards and were a bit underwhelmed. Quote, We popped it into the player in my van and expected to hear Led Zeppelin coming out, but we were kind of appalled by what we heard. It just didn't sound the way we wanted it to sound. In August, they reconvened to record their first album. Templeman, to me, was gift wrapped almost everything a producer could possibly want. He had an innovative guitar virtuoso. He had a great rhythm section, and all of, the, all of those guys could sing. Eddie could sing, Michael could sing, Alex to, to at least some degree could sing. Yeah, they had, <laughs> they had great songs that had been honed to razor-sharp perfection playing in clubs. But he wasn't sure that he had the right lead singer. Roth was charismatic. He was captivating on stage. And while he is, I would call him, Will, a stylist as a vocalist. Yeah, he's kind maybe, of like a Sinatra. Kind of a stylist, and he has that signature high-end scream. But Templeton noted that there were limitations. "Quote: The truth was that Dave's performance in Sunset Sound only raised my anxieties about his abilities. Some of his vocal performances, to be frank, just weren't acceptable. Every time I heard him get pitchy or completely miss a note, I worried that the public was going to be turned off by this band because of his limitations. While he had his moments, he mostly just croaked along." while the other guys played the most amazing shit, Templeman said in his book, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. He actually considered firing David Lee Roth. Wow. But ultimately he decided that Roth's personality was a plus. Most heavy metal acts were dour, almost to the point of being cliche, but Roth brought a sense of humor to the proceedings. He also wrote really good lyrics. So Templeman decided to accentuate the things that he did well vocally. He now says that firing Roth would have been a huge mistake. So he put aside the idea he had of replacing Roth with the then former lead singer of Montrose. I guess he thought Sammy Hagar and Van Halen, that'll never work. Yeah, who came up Ah. with that? Ted Templeman in 1977 considered canning David Lee Rolfe and replacing him with Sammy Hagar.
4: Yep, who was at that time big with Montrose. Uh,
0: right, right, I had just been fired from Montrose, uh, Montrose I think, actually. At that point, um, yeah, he's building and, and the other thing is, Eddie and Alex were a were huge fans of the first uh, Montrose album.
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
0: And if you're not familiar with it, pe- people, please go listen to it. Just, you know what? Uh, here, here's your, your gateway drug to early Montrose. Just find the song Rock Candy and you'll thank us later.
3: Oh, so good.
0: The album was recorded relatively quickly and cheaply, and it was recorded quickly aside from about the only thing that held him up a little was him working for hours and hours and hours trying to get decent, what he deemed decent vocals from Dave. With the exception of uh, some overdubs on a few songs, the album was recorded live in the studio with Templeman wanting to capture the vibe and frenzy of their concerts. There were nine original songs and two remakes, now, the one remake that everybody knows, of course, is the band's cover of the Kinks classics, You Really Got Me. Yep. Roth said that he had bought a Kinks Greatest Hits double album from K-Tale and that the band played a lot of those songs in their concerts. Templeman liked the idea of having a cover or two per album, which he felt would have better shots at being hits. Many people likely didn't even know that there was another cover on that, that being Ice Cream Man. It was originally recorded by Chicago blues man John Brim in the 50s, But being that it is a completely filthy ditty about uh, dipping more than your sugar cone, it didn't get a whole lot of distribution or airplay at the time. Now, I have talked for a really long time. (laughs) So let's finally get to something else from the debut album. The first one we'll hear is what, after his death, NPR called, quote, one of the five songs that best shows off Eddie Van Halen's Genius. It notes that the song actually has two distinct solos. Quote, in the first, he plays a finger-tap run and a swiftly-picked ascending line that could be lifted straight from eruption, but are presented with a concision that only enhances their impact. The second solo spins notes at a pace that leaves a listener gasping for breath. It's a perfect summation of early Van Halen to me. If You've got amazing guitar, you've got terrific song, underrated bass and drum work, harmonies that were very uncommon for hard rock bands at the time, and the trademark sense of humor of Van Halen presented musically. It also established their trend of throwing something at you from way outside out of left field that you don't see coming, that's present in some form on almost all the Roth era albums. So we're gonna take a, a break now for to finally hear some music. This is from Van Halen 1. This is the excellent I'm the one. <laughs>
1: Shibiruwa Papara Shibiruwa but i
2: good lord. lord
4: yeah that is one of my favorite songs and i feel like it doesn't get enough due no but because there's so many bangers on that first album but
0: that one slides under the radar a tiny bit and i'm like it, it shouldn't
4: no way yeah
0: the, the 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 guitar it's just just absolute fire and the little the little breakdown in the middle the, bah, bah, duh,
4: it's amazing yeah <laughs>
0: It disarms you, and then the thing just kicks back into overdrive, and it's like, "Oh my god!" Like it just that—that's one of those songs that just like, like grabs you by the face, and oh, oh so it, good, man.
4: It just rocks. Help me.
0: <laughs> now, the entire album would be widely sampled in years to come, but the most notable example is obviously Tone Loke, who borrowed heavily from Jamie's Crying for Wild Thing. <laughs> Eddie, for all the world, sounds like he's record scratching on Atomic Punk that's another one, much like the first time I heard Eruption. When I heard it, I said, how does he do that? Yeah, it was how a does he cover. do it? Yeah. Eddie said he almost didn't bring the song Ain't Talking About Love to the rest of the band because he thought it was too simplistic, but the finished product is obviously a masterwork. What? Yeah, that's a great... And I, and I guess if you think about it, Will, in his mind, he's, if you think about the, I mean, the, the, the melody, it's pretty much uh, bump, bump, bum bump, 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 bump I mean, it is fairly simple, but it's how you
4: play it. Right, and again, I think that goes back to our, when we started this episode about Eddie's level of genius. He's not seeing these things the way everyone else is seeing them, you know? Right. He's got a different take on all of them. There's one song that wasn't
0: intended to be on the record at all, and that was (laughs) Eruption. Now, I've read more than one version of how the song came to be from Eddie himself in interviews. He consistently says that it was something he played to warm up. But in one version of the story, he said that the tape was accidentally left rolling, and Templeman heard it later and loved it. In another version, he says Templeman just heard him warming up with it and was insistent that they record it. Eddie claims that there is a mistake in it. Having said in an interview, quote, I didn't even play it right. Whenever I hear it, I always think, man, I could have played that better. What?
2: Yeah, yeah you uh, jerk.
4: You can play it. That's the thing. Is yeah. He's like one of the few people that can play the damn thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you were a total loser. That sucked.
4: <laughs> yeah, you should never have a
2: career spanning forty years, forty to fifty years, you jerk.
0: Okay, apparently at the at the top end of the song, he says that he accidentally hits a higher fret than he meant to. Now, I've listened to the exact spot, you and you can find it uh, online if if you go look for it, and it doesn't sound out of place to me. So I don't know what he hears that I don't, other than uh, you know, I if everything he does just just blows my mind to such a degree but he, i guess he's a perfectionist and nitpicks himself clearly I, I wouldn't have known it was wrong Is basically what i'm getting at but that song blemish and all was about to change the face of music inspire or intimidate scores of musicians and announce the arrival of a new guitar god secondarily it would also blow the minds of two teenagers in Santuck, south carolina 13 years later now that's pretty much going to wrap up this first episode um, and we're doing four parts uh, on Eddie Van Halen, but you know, Will and I were talking and to us Van Halen is the ultimate drunk guys arguing about them band. This they're is,
4: up there. yeah. And,
0: and ladies, lest you be misled into thinking that we have deep and meaningful discussions when we sit around and drink beer. No, we sit around and argue about Dave or Sammy. What's Eddie's best solo? Yeah. <laughs> or, there, this is the ultimate drunk guy debate band.
2: I've been about. there at Christmas, and at, at one point, I give up and go to bed because you guys are talking about, like, hey, you remember track four on Ba, Ba, Ba? And I'm like, I, I have no place I, in this at, conversation.
0: At at a certain point, she taps out when, when we say things like, you know, I would actually argue that that uh, Eddie Money album is really undervalued. Eddie Money's um, another
4: one we have to do, by the way, but that's a yes.
0: I, I, abso- 100%. We absolutely do. Um, but we said and earnestly argue about, you know, things like that. But Van Halen is the ultimate drunk guy, argue about them, band. So we thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we put little lists or rankings or debates at the end of each episode? So the, wh- the one we're going to do in this first one is we're going to both rank the 12 Van Halen studio albums, 12 to 1. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you there are two that, given where I have them, some diehards and any musicians who listen to this show are going to want to kick me in the balls.
4: Uh, yeah, mine is going to start preventing me from helping anyone
0: quit smoking
4: <laughs> <laughs> later in life. When it comes to my list, I feel that most people will agree on my first act and my third act. It's the middle that mm-hmm. will bring out the torches and the pitchforks.
0: Uh, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So I say, I'm, I'll go first. Or do you want to, do you want to me go 12,
4: me say my 12, you say your 12? Uh, I say you do yours first, then I'll I'll try and dive in. Then LD, contribute us. Welcome to what? Okay. Right.
2: Today, <laughs> we're counting down our picks for the top 12 Two. Van Halen albums,
4: studio albums. Studio. Studio. The top 12 studio
0: albums. These are, they, they only did 12 studio so albums. And we're going to rank them. So for me, number 12 is Van Halen 3. Mm -hmm. Eddie's guitar sounds really good, but it, to me, puts to rest the idea that a great musician can, quote, play the phone book, and it's going to be great. Because you need great songs, and there just aren't any on that album. Not one.
4: Uh, for, okay, I, I'll let you finish it off, but I have another thought on that. Uh, you
0: know, no, I was just going to say, great memorable music requires great songs, and, and there aren't even any on that album that are any good. There's one song on there that might might reach okay status, but the whole thing was just bad. Gary Sharon, God love him. It's not that he's a bad singer, because you can find clips of concerts that they played with, him during his very brief time as the lead singer van halen and his voice sounds good but he doesn't bring a presence and an authority the way that dave or sammy does Correct. gravitas Correct. is the word that you know people would you know be as political talking head types would
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: would use on 24-hour news channels but to me there's just everything about it to to quote myself is bad wrong and awful and it's the it's <laughs> my last i have it in 12th place
4: so my number 12 is going to just repeat everything TJ2 just said, Van Halen 3 is hot garbage. Um, my my feeling about it has always been that it sounds like a Vegas act trying to sound like Van Halen.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah,
4: I've always felt that the, again, Sharon's vocals are fine. Eddie Van Halen is still one of the best guitar players that has ever lived. It was just a shadow of who Van Halen was It was like live at the Golden nugget you know the Van Halen experience. that's what I yeah. got listening to Welcome to the stage 5150 and uh, and let me let me throw out two things before we continue our list here and I think TJ2 this may come into play with your list. First of all, this is my opinion so don't you know if your album is ranked lower than you'd like, don't get angry at me. Uh, it's just my opinion but and, but, e- but e- email us or hit us up on the socials oh, and sure, yeah. uh, argue your case. We'd love to. I'd love to hear you out absolutely. This is this is my opinion and the lens that I viewed this through was put on the album let it play start to finish how often do you need to skip. So that was my criteria for generating this list. So Okay. That should give some cadence to what comes next. But yeah, Van Halen's right. totally agree. Batten 12. So
0: we we're, we are we are unanimous on Van Halen 3 being a steaming pile um <laughs> that we, we plan to discuss as little as possible in the course of doing this podcast as we go forward.
4: Regretfully, it's in that place, yes.
0: Uh, number 11, I have Diver Down. Oh! Uh, if this sounds like a hastily conceived grab bag, it's mainly because it's a hastily conceived grab bag. <laughs> so, and we'll get into this in part two. The band was forced to put out an album when all they wanted to do was record and release one standalone single. So they really only had four new full-length songs that they were ready to record. So they laid those down, and then they did five covers, and they did three instrumentals. Now, the four songs that they recorded that are new full-length songs are really good. I would love to assume what this album could have been if it were not forced out of them by Warner Brothers. Um, you know, I just, I think the finished product would have been really good, um, but, but, you know, Little Guitars is on this one. It's really good. Um, Secrets. I love that one. The Full Bug. And there's a couple of cool remakes, but a lot of it is just feels, it feels like what it is to me, which is a thing that we had to squeeze out when we weren't ready to.
4: Okay. So with number 11, we have our first Deviation. Okay. I'm going to put a different kind of truth at number 11. Oh, okay. Yep. The Return Album with Diamond Dave in 2012 largely forgettable. Again, it felt like a shadow of who Van Halen was. It was sort of a let's package this and give the fans what they want. We'll bring back Dave. Again, some good songs. I think Blood and Fire is good. You and Your Blues is solid.
0: That's a good song. That is a good good song.
4: Again, it just doesn't hold when you look at the rest of the discography. I still put it at the lower end. My number 11, different kind of truth.
0: Okay. Well, at number 10, I have a different kind of truth. Okay. All right. Uh, now, to me, it's it's not that it's a bad record. There are some good songs, and Eddie is in really good form uh, on, on the record. I will say that. But I'm going to tell you a couple of things. One, I miss Mike Anthony.
4: Yeah, same.
0: Particularly vocally. And that, so without him, a lot of the background is just double-tracked vocals of David Lee Roth.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: The other thing is that Dave, by this time, had clearly lost some vocal range, and he didn't have a lot to lose to start with. That's noticeable.
4: His voice had aged, yeah.
0: It has had had aged. It, that he had an even more limited range than he did in the early days, when his range was not his strong suit. This you you nailed it. This almost feels like a cover band, a really good cover band with the with an amazing guitar player. But yeah, it, it feels like, and and so many of the songs to me have twins from Van Halen's past. Like "Stay Frosty" sounds an awful lot like "Ice Cream Man." Yeah. I would know, and now part of that is because a lot of these songs and rips were from old unfinished demos from way back in the day. So again, I, I don't, I don't hate the record. It, I, I like some of the songs. "You and Your Blues" is a really, really good song. Yeah, they they've got a couple. Of, uh, "She's the Woman" is a good song. There's, there's a lot of good ones on there. It's just, and, and I'll tell you the other thing I don't like: the production is really slick, which is probably owed to the time that it was. I mean, was from 2012, so we we're into digital recording instead of the old analog stuff that they used to record on. But all of that stuff, it's not a bad record. It Just to me, uh, your description was
4: pretty out. Okay. So you've got that one at number 10, huh? Yep. All right. I must admit, 9 and 10 were a real struggle for me. Uh, My 10 o'clock... My 10 o'clock... My number 10 slot is actually going to... Get ready. This might upset you guys. Balance. Uh, No! Okay. uh, Again, we're, we're moving significantly beyond Van Halen 3 and A Different Kind of Truth at this point. It is obviously the last album with Sammy Hagar, his departure from the band, which I'm sure, TJ, you'll get into, so I won't expound on that, but I think the cracks were very apparent in this album. And I'm going to offer the same critique that I will of another entry on this list, a little further down my list. It struck me as a great half an album. Can't Stop Loving You, really good song. Amsterdam, I really enjoyed. I even enjoyed feeling. It felt the whole time like the album was batting about 500. Good track, forgettable track. Good track, forgettable track. So, I have to put Sammy Swan song at number 10 with balance. I really okay. I like that that's
2: that's actually one of the albums I bought. Like I remember buying Deep. the
4: cassette. And, and, oh wow. We're talking about my opinion and also a lower ranked Van Halen album, which is still above some bands' best albums. Absolutely. So keep that in mind.
0: Now, number nine for me, this is where we're probably going to get some pissed off people, <laughs> particularly if there are musicians who listen to the show, because mm-hmm. this seems to be a favorite of musicians. I've got fair warning at number nine.
4: Oh! Yeah. Oh. Um, you may want to check out that mob forming on your front lawn
0: there. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say I can see the the soft glow of torches.
4: <laughs> in the front yard.
0: Now, again, musicians and hardcore fans are probably going to want to give me a ball kick and effigy on this one. But first of all, I want to make it clear: I really like the album. I really do. It's dark. It's heavy, and it, uh, you know, it, it's a different. It was a much different sound than you know their first three albums uh, you know had delivered, but. I, there, I, here's the problems I have with it. Okay. One, now I am a fan of Dave's delivery, but the sort of jokey half-talk, half-sing bit that he uses gets way, way overused on this album, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I also just flat out don't like that synth sound on Sunday afternoon in the park. Oh. That really heavy wah, wah, wah. It, I mean, it sounds like a, a a like a, I don't know, a Hammond organ is farting. <laughs> again I, I, me having it at nine doesn't mean that it's not good and that I don't like it because I do these got very hard for me to parse out at this point but I, I'm, I'm much to the chagrin and anger of some listeners I have I have fair warning at nine
4: okay reasonable well number nine is where I actually have diver down okay you know I, I feel that there are not as many notable songs on this and like you said it was rushed in production it strikes me as the kind of album that again, just kind of gets glazed over a lot of the time. I do think there's some really good high points though. I mean, there's the cover of Pretty Woman, there's Dancing in the Street, Little Guitars, as you pointed out is great. Uh, Hang Hang'em High, a highly overlooked song in my opinion. Sure. So there's some definitely bright spots and the album is still thematic. Start to finish, there's a through line of sound that you can take from the first track to the last track. Uh, due to the production notes that you mentioned, I think it sits right where it should at number nine. Again, it's out of that sort of first act of, you know, really forgettable Van Halen material, but Mm -hmm. still not to their their real, you know, watershed moment yet. So I have got it down at number nine.
0: Okay. At number eight, and this is going to anger some people because I have it ahead of fair warning, the eight is where I put balance. Okay. Now, I'm sure people think that I have this one overrated. I, in fact, was really meh about this when it came out originally. Okay. But as prep for the series on Eddie Van Halen, I, I listened to the entire Van Halen catalog, as I've told you already. And this one, to, to me, this aged well. Now, the instrumentals don't pop like they normally do. And they don't serve as like grand intros for the songs to follow the way they normally do on Van Halen albums. And Big Fat Money is just kind of there. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Um, the instrumentals feel like filler, and Big Fat Money is just meh. But the rest is atypically dark, for, especially for the Hagar period, which was a mostly up, you know, party vibe on, on most of, of the songs from the previous three albums with him. And there are some really heavy, heavy riffs on this one. Much, much heavier, and, and the, the the guitar tone was a little bit cleaner, even. And I think that this has the best lead vocals of almost any Van Halen album in the catalog. Sammy sings his ass off on this.
4: He's spectacular, um, yeah.
0: And feeling is, a, I, I, feeling is great. I like the, se- the seventh sign. I've forgotten how oh, good that, that sounded. The opening track, no? That's the opening track. I Can't Stop Loving You. I remembered as being this really light little pop rock ballad. But upon going back and listening to it, I guess, maybe with a more mature ear, there's some dark edges even to that one.
4: Yeah. That's a, that's a deep song. I like that song. Yeah.
0: So, um, so yeah, that some people will think I have that one too high, but I have balance at number
4: eight. Great. Well, I know this is surely the one that's going to get me in trouble with my number eight and that's going to be women and children first. Oh yeah. I, I, I did myself the, I'll call it disservice of before this this podcast recording this session of looking at other lists and realizing how high most people have this and i understand the accolade behind hey cradle will rock and everybody wants some kicking off an album yeah no nailed it no notes uh romeo delight i think is one of those overlooked kind of underrated songs
0: yep yep yep.
4: i feel the same way about this album that i do with balance it's inconsistent the highs are high, the lows are low. You still have a good outing from David Lee Roth at this point. I just don't think it's as cohesive as the other offerings that are gonna come next. I did put it again above those albums like Diver Down because I think it wasn't a little the, it was rushed in production. I just feel like we got half an album with this one. Okay. And that's why right. I have it as my number eight, Women and Children First.
0: Okay, for me, number seven. This one you you may this this may anger you. I don't know. I don't because we haven't seen each other's list. Okay. I have OU eight one two at seven. Okay, let's hear it. There are a couple of songs to me on here that while the while they're not bad, they're a little bit filler ish feeling to me. There's some there are some really really that to me I'm going to go almost with what you just said about women and children first. The highs are high, but then there's they're not really any lows, but there are some stuff that's kind of medium. Okay. The highs are very high. I, I, I love love, 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 finish what you started. Ugh. The other thing about this one is that there is the the keyboards and the synthesizers, this is probably the heaviest. They are on any Van Halen record on this one. Uh, you know feels feel so good is built entirely on keyboard. yes when it's love. It, it's a great it's a great song, but it, it's it's built heavily on keyboards and stuff which is not, I, I'm not opposed to them because I do like a lot of that side of Van Halen too, but it's just, I miss them rocking a little bit on this one, I guess maybe. And and again, that I have it as my seventh Van Halen, seventh favorite Van Halen album, probably means it's one of my 100 favorite albums ever. Right, yeah. But, yeah, but I mean, we're, I'm, I'm, and I'm splitting hairs here to, to separate them, but I have OU812 at number seven.
4: Okay. Well, then I think my number seven may, uh, if around is Fair Play, may irk you a little bit here. My number seven is from a very similar era, and that would be For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Oh, yeah. We are now into the meat of the Hagar era. You know, I think OU812 is definitely part of that, and, and I think For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge is, in my opinion, the, the Hagar album. There are a lot of songs on there that, again, you can just throw this one on and let it play through. I am a big fan of the opening track, Pound Cake. I love that intro where the guitar sounds like a power drill.
0: It is a power drill.
4: It, well, there you go. There's yeah. a reason for it. Um, I love the sound that they generate this Judgment Day, Spanked, Run Around, In and Out, all solid songs. And, you know, we cannot overlook, obviously, the Pièce de Resistance, which is, of course, a song that's still timely even today, right now. It is. It is a spectacular song. That all came out of this early 90s outing for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. I think I have it ranked just where it should be it's definitely not in this pantheon of the absolute best Van Halen has to offer. It's a solid B. It is a solid B. And that's why I've got it at number 7.
0: Um for me, I had it was I have a top four that's definitive and they're under themselves. Okay. 5 through about 9 and I had three that were eh. well, no, I had one that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And two that are mad. But ranking five to about nine, putting those in order, I just I kept changing them and moving them around, and I'd listen to one of them and think, oh no no, I I need to rank this one higher. Then I'd listen to something else and go, oh well I don't know. So this was this was tough. But at number six, I have women and children first. Okay. And like I said, splitting hairs to separate some of these, but to me, this was a huge departure from. Their first two albums because this was this was their third release because you had a little bit more of a there was a little bit more of a tongue in cheek uh sense of humor to the first two heavy as they were this one was a little darker um the riffs were a little heavier this is about as close as they get to heavy metal as opposed to hard rock mm. um the 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 second part of the instrumental Tora torah if you had just played that for me and said, "Well, you know who this is," and I and I'd not heard it, I would have guessed Black Sabbath. Yeah, I can hear that because it sounds like it's almost like right out of War Pigs or something. Mm. The way it goes, it rolls into "Loss of Control" is brilliant, like you said. Uh, and the cradle will rock. Everybody wants some um, just just absolute bangers all the way through. And then there's this disarmingly charming, pretty little acoustic ballad called could this be magic Could this be magic yeah which is which i, which I really like and and which that song showed off that they could really sing well dave kind of did what he did but I, but the other guys could really sing <laughs> so i have women and children at number six
4: that is good and number six is exactly where i have fair warning i think oh, okay odd for it you know you have dave still being dave as you pointed out but there is a grittiness to this album There is a dark tone with Mean Street and Sinner's Swing. It's kind of, again, just just heavier, and it's pervasive throughout the entire album. So when I look at this, yeah, there are some key songs on there. There's also So This Is Love, you know, and I really think this is just an album, again, you can put on start to finish. It's mostly up up notes, you know. Again, So This Is Love, Sunday Afternoon in the Park, like you said, is a little synthy. But I really think this is still the core of that original Van Halen era before they started making some major changes. So I have fair warning right smack in the middle of number six.
0: Okay. Number five for me, I'm going with 5150. Oh, okay. I had a tough time separating... This one and women and children. I kept moving. This, these are the two. I in particular, I moved back and forth and back and forth. I ended up going with this is the order I had them in. So, this, as of when I typed it up, so that's what I'm going with. To me, 5150 gets unfairly pegged as being ballady, but I think that's just because of the songs that were released as singles. They released a bunch of the of, you know, of the songs ballads as singles. And first of all, all those are really good songs, by the way. Mm-hmm. Love Walks In is a great song. There's two that have love in the title.
4: Uh, why Can't This Be Love?
0: Yeah, Why Can't This Be Love? It's a good song. It's like, yes, it's a little slower and more ballady, but it's it, that doesn't mean it's bad. But I think there are some underrated bangers on this album. 5150. Oh, yeah. Best of Both Worlds. Inside. Summer Nights. There are some, some really good heavier rippy or party rock kind of songs that uh, on not. this album ba- balanced by you know some synth and and some ballads and stuff but uh I, I i love 5150 so i've got it at number five
4: got it and again this for me was very tough my number five is actually ou812 so i have okay. a few notches up from where you placed it for me these are my formative years when it comes to van halen I purchased both this and the next installment on cassette. So for me, there is a bit of nostalgia here. I still think oh, OU812 is a very versatile album. Start to finish. Like you said, when it's love, great song. Finish what you started. Incredible. Maybe one of the top Van Halen songs from the and, and,
0: and so and and such a departure, so different from yeah. anything else they ever did.
4: and I think this album is underappreciated in its versatility, track to track. I mean, look at Cabo Wabo. You've got yeah. these totally different, different outings on each and every track, all the way through to the finish with A Political Blues. Again, this is one of my first Van Halen albums. I stand by it in the top five. OU812.
0: Okay. AA Political Blues, it, by mm-hmm. the way, I think is the only cover they did in the Hagar era.
4: I'm trying to think of an exception, but you may be right.
0: And that and and that was a pretty obscure one to be doing. That was an old little feat. Song, but um, yeah. Now this, uh, boy, I was really splitting hairs over these, the over <laughs> which to put it four and which to put it three. But I'm gonna blow some people's minds here. At number four, I have 1984. Whoa! Blasphemy. Now this this song, and again, w- when we're talking about my four favorite Van Halen albums, we're talking about probably four of my thirty or forty favorite albums. Period. Ever. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hold these in unbelievably high esteem. I love 1984. I don't love the intro the big synth intro that leads that leads off the album and tails right into a jump. I, I saw somewhere where somebody described it as uh, Optimus prom vomiting. That's what <laughs> interesting, that's interesting. Like. Interesting. There's just one classic after another on this one.
4: Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, you, you listen uh, I, I, and I don't love I'll wait. It, it's fine to, to me but
4: oh, really? okay.
0: outside that man, John for Teacher, Panama, yeah, my, uh, House of Pain great is song. a criminally underrated Van Halen song. Drop Dead Legs is a great song. Top Jimmy's a great song. Top to bottom, this is just like, you, you listen, you go, oh, classic. That's a classic. That's a classic. So I have this one at number four.
4: That's fair. And my number four as we do a little docy do here is 5150. Now, there are sections of the Van Halen fan base who swear by Hagar, swear by Roth, and never the Twain do me. However, this is the album, which is Sammy's first with the band, that even the Roth diehards will say, yeah, that's a solid album. 5150 just start to finish is incredible. It rocks. I mean, from good enough, why can't this be love? Get up dreams. I mean, it's it's pert near flawless all the way through. Almost no filler. I think it starts with a bang. It ends with a bang. And like I said, this is one I bought on cassette. This is one of my first album purchases that I made on my own. And it is, I think, the gem in the Sammy Hagar era crown. Number four, 5150.
0: Okay. Number three for me is for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge.
4: Ooh, a bit higher than
0: um, most. Yeah. I, and I, like I said, I went back on, back and forth on whether this should be four in 1984 should be three or they should be flip-flopped or whatever but this this is part of the, the the personal story of this is the first Van Halen album that I was waiting on when it came out that I went and bought the day it was released I had been turned on to you know their earlier stuff just a few months beforehand and had kind of started gravitating toward them this was my band I decided I would also say they put for the with one notable exception, obviously they put the keyboards away and they <laughs> remind everybody, "Hey, we're a bunch of ass kicking rock and rollers."
4: Yeah, we're rock. Band. That,
0: it's a much heavier record than the two first ones with Sammy Eddie. The guitar is just phenomenal on on this record. Almost every song is about sex.
1: Damn! <laughs> but, yeah. um,
0: but top of the world, pound cake, man on a mission, spank, uh, one just one after the other. I I love every song. I don't skip a one of them. So. Uh, partly for personal reasons, but partly because I just think it's a really good record. I have Four and Knowledge at number three.
4: Yeah, and although I ranked it lower than than you have it, you know, I had it at seven, its playability from track to track is almost seamless, you know, yeah. from one song to the next. It just flows as an album, so. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have it as high-ranked as yours, but solid album. I agree. All right. So your number three is? Here we go. Van Halen 2. Okay. Their second outing, Almost as good as the first, Dance the Night Away. I mean, did we forget about Spanish Fly? It's what? almost
0: like a, it's almost like Eruption played on a dobro. <laughs>
4: it, it's so bizarre and so cool. I love it. Bottoms Up, DOA, highly overlooked song. Again, I think yeah. it has all the punch of that first Van Halen outing. It's got a lot of great songs on it. It's only edged out by the next two installments. And I think if you've been following along at home, you know what those are going to be. You you know what those two are. Yeah, Um, I've got VH2 at number three. Okay,
0: so uh, number two for me, obviously there are only two albums left, so you can probably figure out, uh, or at least narrow down which one it is, but at number two for me is Van Halen 2. Um, I think this is one of the most underrated albums ever by any artist. It starts off with one of the best and weirdest remakes ever of them doing You're No Good, which... They don't change a word, but it sounds like it's a different song and has a different meaning than when Linda Ronstadt or whoever sings it. And they proceed to slay it on every track. There's not an ounce of dead weight. The vibe is fun. They take their first stab at a kind of sort of ballad, I guess, Dance the Night Away. Beautiful Girls, to close the thing out, is is a very fun and funny, lighthearted song, but with a killer riff. I'm with you. I think DOA is an absolutely underrated track one of my it's one of my favorite van halen songs ever light up the sky somebody get me a doctor women in love just great song after great song and i've got it at number two
4: fair enough well again with a few selections left and i think we all know what everyone's number one is at this point my number two is going to be 1984 because come on i mean come on so many hits so much good stuff i know you said you're not a fan of the synth stuff but the song is iconic you cannot debate that. Oh, I still
0: love. I still love Jump. I, I, I I'll, I'll wait. Is to me, it's just, it's just okay. But everything else on that album is gold.
4: I'll wait is kind of the moment in a book or a movie where the characters are about to go into the final conflict or confrontation. There's a little bit of a lull where they sort of reflect. For me, that's I'll wait. And then, of course, you go into Girls Gone Bad and finish up with House of Pain, one of my, top underrated songs, which we'll get to later, and also did. Most people overlook Drop Dead Legs. That's a great song. That is a great song. It is a great song. Top top. Jimmy is a good song. Top Jimmy is a good song. This album is is pert near complete. Obviously not as much as our picks for number one, but my second pick is going to be 1984.
0: Hands down. Okay. Well, so... uh, (laughs) There's really not there's really not much suspense here because there's Uh-oh. only one album left for both of us. But for me, Van Halen, Van Halen, is at number one. Yep. Um, there's been about four debut albums to me that no one has ever come close to touching. Okay. Even decades later, you know that that haven't been equaled by, by anybody. Led Zeppelin one, I put on that list. It, I mean, nothing sounds like that. I put Appetite for Destruction on there.
4: Oh, absolutely.
0: Nothing has ever sounded like that before or since. I would put Shake Your Money Maker on there because it's just, I, I, I was just such a huge fan of the Black Crows when they first came out and Van Halen one we, We've talked a lot about it already. It, it's perfect. It is a perfect hard rock album. It's got, the songs are great. The playing is otherworldly phenomenal to the point that I still, all these years later, haven't, I've never heard anybody else play, make, any, make, make music that sounds like that. And, you know, I, I love, the, the fact that it's a hard rock band, but they embrace melody and harmony. Just the songs are, are very well written. They're sequenced perfectly. One just sets up the other. That sets up the other. Uh, it's 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 a it, there's not a second of dead weight. It's perfect. I, it's one of my favorite albums ever. Van Halen one is at number one for me.
4: Yep can't can't argue that. Like I said, when I put this list together, I said album you can throw on start to finish, let it play through. I wouldn't skip a single track on this one. Not a one. It's it's a complete album. Plans of yeah,
0: life. so there it is. And you know what? If you disagree with uh, my list or with Will's list, or if you just want to say, hey guys, here, here, here's the order I would put them in, you can hit us up on the socials that LD is about to give. And we'll uh, finish up after that with one more song from Ben Halen.
2: All right. So if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we encourage that absolutely. Uh, if you think it, we're doing a really good job and uh, you got stimulated and think, hey, I should give them money, you can do that at uh, patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can reach out to us on Twitter at rock and roll LT, our Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod, still not saying our website. Mm-hmm. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please, please, please make sure that you check out all the other awesome pantheon podcast at www.pantheonpodcast.com and you know we are starting fresh and it's a new year so we just got like our year in numbers sent to us and we here at rock and roll heaven just wanted to give a heartfelt thanks to every single person who tunes into our show i think that uh, t has a good sentiment for this
0: yeah uh, seriously uh, we very very sincerely Appreciate the fact that you listen to what we're doing. I, I Having previously worked in radio, I at one point worked at a station that per capita was like the number one rated station in the state. And I've worked I worked at some bigger FMs, but also worked at a uh, station that was in a single wide trailer that two or three people might have listened to. <laughs> o- only the, only them because they were a captive audience that had a broken radio that would only got one station. Or <laughs> and and it's it's very hard when you put a lot when you put. Work into something, and you, you're trying to do a good job, and and no one's hearing it. It's very frustrating. So to know that there there is actually you guys are out there listening, we I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. We really do.
2: Yeah, and uh, if you guys could, you know, this helps the show to grow. But if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star review if you're pleased, and if not, email us first, or at least tell us why you're not giving us five stars, because we can't get better if you don't tell us. You know what's uh what's going on in in radio oh, and
0: we're because because we're still baffled by who the other hillbilly is
2: <laughs> please explain
0: the second hillbilly i i
2: i post i ask and i got no answer i'm 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 confused just who's the other hillbilly
4: <laughs> also there there's so much material when it comes to this subject and you guys have been instrumental in providing us with great examples from the past season and we just want you to know that that door is always open you know if you have a suggestion a thought a comment let us know because there is so much to uncover and I personally enjoy delving into these artists and basically bringing their awareness you know back into the public consciousness. like Eddie Van Halen's death was fairly recent it's unfortunate that we lost him you can go back to this catalog and there's so much there and I think that is the goal we want people to explore different music try new things explore new artists and I think that all starts with the Input we get from you guys on artists that were meaningful to you, so please know that that door is open. Yeah, and
0: uh, obviously with somebody like Eddie Van Halen who had a forty-some odd year career and is viewed as one of the all-time greats at playing his instrument, even with a four-part episode, we're just scratching the surface. There's a ton out there. We can't play every song. Wish we could, except for Van Halen 3 because it sucks. <laughs> But like I like like Will, part of this exercise for me was that I went back and listened to the entire Van Halen catalog. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten how good "Women and Children First was. Just as an example, that there were a lot of of songs that you know they don't get recurrent radio airplay. You don't really hear them on you know movies or TV very much. So going back and hearing them, I was like, "Oh man, I forgot this is a killer song. Yeah. Oh, this is a great song." So yeah, that we that this was for us was a part of this was going back and, and listening to everything and rediscovering some stuff that we had forgotten about some little hidden gems. So, um, but we just encourage you, listen to music, read the articles, read the books, watch the videos, watch the documentaries. If you want to get a, a, a full picture, cause we'll, we'll do as, as much as we can. And um, I enjoyed it guys.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love hearing about everything that he was just even at a young age, he was so beyond his peers Mm-hmm. And I love the innovations that he's making this early on,
0: so, and that, that he that he was able to conceptualize. Gosh, I can't get quite the sound I want. What if I take this pickup out of this guitar and put it in that one? And what if I cover the what if I cover the pickups in wax? And what if I play with the voltage to to till he until he finally got the sound that he wanted? That he was able to conceive it. So that's what I consider a genius. Yeah, smart yeah. is just you know a lot of stuff. A genius is a person who conceives of things nobody else has and creates them. Makes it yeah. makes it be a thing. And Eddie did that. Yeah. So, obviously we have a lot uh, more ground to cover and I promise you that we're going to get to naked people and cocaine in the next episode. <laughs> oh good. I was waiting. So, uh, we're going to we're going to close by noting that eruption, the song that started something big, doesn't actually start the album off. <laughs> so we're going to end part one of the Eddie Van Halen series with a song that actually begins the first Van Halen album. And it would thus be the first actual Van Halen song. Anyone buying an album would have heard as they dropped the needle on the outer edge of the vinyl. So we're going to wrap it up tonight from rock and roll heaven with running with the devil. All
2: right, guys have a great week. We will see you next week for the second part of Eddie Van Halen.
4: Thank you everyone. See you next time. Bye, everybody.
1: i